From zero trust roadmaps to carbon reduction, federal agencies are moving under a lot of agendas. They all end up being contractor concerns, too. Here with a review of some of the latest, the Executive Vice President for Policy at the Professional Services Council, Stephanie Castro. And Stephanie, good to have you back. And let's start with the Carbon Reduction Mandate Executive Order. I talked to the Construction Industry Association about this, and of course, there you have an industry that really consumes a lot of energy and moving steel and concrete and glass around and digging holes with big machinery. In the professional services, the contractors are going to be affected by the same rule, but what does software coding or a management consulting firm do about carbon here? What, what, what's, uh, what's your industry's take on all of this? Thanks for having me, Tom. And, and this is a great topic. You know, a lot of a lot of time and energy has been spent by the White House and, in, in fact, international bodies talking about climate change and greenhouse gas emissions and the like. And it's worth a few sentences just to familiarize your audience with what this proposed rule does. It was released on November 14th, but it is really about disclosing greenhouse gas emissions and climate-related financial risk for government contractors. And it really imposes a lot of disclosure requirements on, you know, you mentioned the building industry, but products producers as well as services contractors. It's interesting from our perspective because you know, they slice and dice this a lot of different ways. The first way uh, they they differentiate companies is determining whether you're a major contractor or a significant contractor. Now, that might be splitting hairs to some folks, but as defined in the proposed rule, major contractors have at least $50 million in the prior fiscal year in government contracts, and they have to report three different scopes of emissions. One is ones that they actually own and control, so their greenhouse gas emissions from their actual business. The second scope is all those emissions associated with the generation of electricity, utilities, uh, heating and cooling, or or steam that they use um, to do what it is that they do. And scope three is really the most difficult one, which is those in their supply chain. And so when you're looking at it from a professional services perspective, you know we may have low scope one, greenhouse gases that we ourselves are, are, are producing. But, you know, the heating and cooling of mainframes, you mentioned the IT and cyber type stuff, um, software, that kind of stuff is going to be significant. And the scope three is really, again, going to be difficult. What do your downstream providers have within the, their emissions uh, basket? And that's going to be a challenge. Yeah, um, that gets to be really strange when you think about it. Suppose I'm doing sec dev ops for a military agency. Yep. And I buy, I don't know, Red Hat software tools to help me in my sec dev. I mean, I have to know Red Hat's, and then Red Hat has to know its suppliers. And it gets, I don't know, it just doesn't seem like it's something that is practical to come up with realistic numbers. U.S. suppliers and then also your foreign suppliers, where they may not track the same kinds of emissions, et cetera, that, that other U.S. companies might do, but also highlight that they've created a new category of contractors called significant contractors. And those are the folks who have at least seven and a half, but less than 50 million in annual contracts with the U.S. government. They don't have to look into their supply chain as deeply. They just have to report on scope one, scope two. This is expensive, and all of this has to happen within a year. And this, I think, is going to be a challenge because companies don't have record keeping in this way. They have to find someone who can help them create a regime. They have to employ it, and then they have to report on it. A year is a very aggressive timeline for this. And so will the council be issuing a comment? The proposed rule was released on November 14th. And so what we're talking about here is the proposed rule that would implement the executive order. And so the comments are due January 13th. 
and uh, we are going to go ahead as the Professional Service Council and submit comments on this rule. Will you generally say kill it or sort of modify it in some way? <laughs> so, you know, we are politically uh, aware and I, I don't think killing it is a, is an option for us, but we will have suggestions. You know, they, they had put out an advance notice to propose rulemaking on something similar about a year ago, and we had fulsome comments on that what we call an ANPR, the Advanced Notice of Proposed Rulemaking. They did take some of our comments about using existing regimes, et cetera, like the greenhouse gas protocol, et cetera. But I would say we have some uh, robust commentary to provide on this proposed rule as well. We're speaking with Stephanie Castro, Executive Vice President for Policy at the Professional Services Council. And then there is the DOD Zero Trust Strategy, which DOD has imposed on itself. I think by 2027, everything will be zero trust. But that's got to somehow translate back to what they want from contractors. I used the phrase slice and dice earlier about how, how we have, you know, three different scopes for two different kinds of contractors for the, the climate change um, and the greenhouse gas emissions rule. This one is sliced and diced in so many more ways. They talk about seven different pillars. They talk about 45 key capabilities, etc. They talk about target zero trust and then advanced zero trust. It is a lot to wade through. Not only did they release their strategy, but they also released a roadmap, which if I could suggest to your listeners that perhaps they go ahead and access the Pentagon CIO's website and, and look at it, it is very detailed about the kinds of uh, capabilities that they're going to require here before FY27 and beyond. That said, I'm a little leery on the resourcing of this. And when you ha- you're asking contractors to do something like zero trust and have lots of different authentication requirements, et cetera, there has to be funding associated with this. Um, and I'm looking forward to seeing the president's FY24 budget request because I really need to see if they're going to put their money where their mouth is. Because there is a government-wide zero trust executive order, and that's famously been out now almost a couple of years. Yeah. And so it, I don't know whether there's funding for federal agencies on the civilian side to do that. Some of them have, I guess, gotten TMF money to modernize and thereby get towards zero trust. Yeah, I think if you look at zero trust, it does fit into sort of the five cybersecurity functions, which are identify, protect, detect, respond, and recover. Zero trust is really the front end of that in terms of making sure that those who can enter your system are, in fact, trusted. What I find interesting about this strategy is that they start out with four strategic goals. Again, I said before that they slice and dice. So you've got five pieces of cybersecurity, but four strategic goals here. But the first one is cultural adaptation. Not everyone accepts zero trust as a principle. And I think that's always going to be the long pole in the tent. And to be honest, in the strategy, they had very few references to contractors. And contractors are going to play a key role in, 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 in implementing this. And they have one as one of their strategic goals, zero trust enablement. And that's sort of where... I think contractors come to play in, in tech acceleration. Again, it's going to cost something, and we're we're waiting to see what that might, how that might be reflected in the president's budget request. And related to that, there is a White House cybersecurity apprenticeship sprint, and there was a DoD memo recently on that to lessen the restrictive labor category requirements. What's your take on this? Yeah, there is a 120-day sprint led by the White House with the Departments of Labor, Commerce, and and likely others about registered apprenticeship programs for cybersecurity. They've created a lot of new apprenticeship programs. The DOD's piece of this was they, they, again, on, on November 14th, released a memo saying they'd like to expand the workforce in cybersecurity by eliminating barriers. There's a, been a long-voiced concern among industry 
that some of the requirements in solicitations coming from the Department of Defense specify educational requirements. And you're really looking for that unicorn who is 22 years old with a four-year degree and 20 years of experience, and they just don't exist. And so they're looking at apprenticeship programs and, and thinking through what that might entail. Again, I come back to a resource question here is because the memo tells contracting officers or program officers to go ahead and reach out to their contracting partners so that contracting partners can develop apprenticeship programs. Those are obviously going to cost money. Where is that money going to come from? And is there going to be an actual acknowledgement within the Department of Defense that having a cybersecurity certification could be the requirement versus a four-year degree and X number of years experience. Stephanie Castro is Executive Vice President for Policy at the Professional Services Council. We'll let you get back to work because there's a lot to do there. (laughs) And uh, as always, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Tom. It's been great. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. (coughs) Cough and cold season is here. Introducing Ricola Max Throat Care, Ricola's most powerful drop yet. It's the best of Swiss nature wrapped around a powerful liquid menthol center for maximum relief from your worst cough and sore throat. Maximum nature for maximum relief. Try the new Ricola Max now, available in the cold and cough aisle. Ricola. It's in our nature. Ladies and gentlemen, we need you. The Benevolent and Protective Order of Elks is looking for you to help support veterans, help with youth scholarships, and be a force in your community. Being a member of the Elks is where you can do all this and much more. We are 31 lodges strong across the state of Iowa. Help pass on our principles of charity, justice, brotherly love, and fidelity. If interested, go to elks.org and use the lodge locator to find a lodge near you. Elks care. Elks share. Brought to you by the Iowa Elks Association.